You're listening to the Live Talk with Lamb podcast hosted by me, Todd Shapiro. Okay, welcome back for episode four with Brad Lamb. My name is Todd Shapiro. Thank you so much all for listening. We really do appreciate it. The last episode, we got some amazing, invaluable advice from Brad Lamb just about sort of saving and thinking about your future, especially, you know, with retirement being extended now because there's not enough money for people. So you don't want to work when you're 78 years old. Let's focus on real estate specifically this episode, Brad, if you wouldn't mind. And a lot of people, again, are worried about the housing market skyrocketing and the prices in cities like Toronto and Vancouver being just way out of reach. What can young people do to invest in the real estate market meaningfully? None of this is complex, right? None of it's going to blow your brain. Um, everyone likes to make this stuff more complicated than it is because, you know, people make fees and advising you on it. But it's really simple stuff. Investing money is simple stuff. Buying homes is simple stuff. And buying investment property is simple stuff. The problem with it is what you really brought up is, is uh, how do you get over... You know, how do you get over that hump to do it? How do you decide today's the day I'm going to change my life, I'm going to do something different, and I'm going to get my shit together and plan a future? Instead of, you know, eating cat food when I'm 75, I'm going to eat filet mignon. So really it's just about getting out and doing it. You know, just go get out and do it. It's not complex stuff. So as I said before, if you're buying a home to live in, if you can afford 2500 I mean, you go to a mortgage uh, broker or a bank, they'll tell you how much you can afford to spend. And they have conservative ratios. There are conservative ratios. This stress test we're doing right now is asinine. The, the regular test for whether you can afford a home or not is the GDS-TDS ratio. They're very conservative ratios. Total debt service, uh, general debt service ratio. And they look at your total costs versus your income. And the bank will tell you right away, you can afford 2500 a month. If you go off and you buy a home that costs 2500 a month, you can afford it. Don't worry, you can afford it. And then what you can do is you can live below your means. So you can even, so you can even maybe pay more down on your mortgage and get rid of your mortgage sooner, which is a very good idea, paying off your debt. Typically up to 10% a year you can do, right? Yeah. And it, that's a great thing to do with your money. But it's not complex. Just go and do it. What about renting out rooms and stuff? In, uh, do, are, are people doing that, buying a place and renting out a room in a condominium just to... Well, uh, in, in, you know, in, 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 so there, there's a lot of people doing uh, Airbnb. Yes. And it's a pestilence, in my opinion, in every city. And, and so here's where I think it's okay. Hmm. If you own a house and you want to rent out a room to some uh, Swedish traveler, that's fine. You're not bothering your neighbor. You're not affecting the value of your own home. But if you buy a condominium and you're in a condominium building, you're in a community, and the community has decided they don't want Airbnb because it's not a hotel, it's a home. And the problem is that a lot of people are buying uh, or renting spaces in buildings and then Airbnb being the space either rent or they own. And that's not allowed in condominiums in Toronto, and we shouldn't be doing it. What, what would you recommend for those listening to say, hey, maybe even take a condominium that might be a little bit smaller than, than you're used to, just to get in the market to owning as opposed to having to rent? I think that you need to do whatever, I mean whatever it takes to get into a home as young as you can. My first home for me to live in, in this era, this was 1988, uh, it was 700 square feet. 
And that was that was a one bedroom with a little solarium. And um, it was a Jarvis and Gerard. But you know, it wasn't a great area. But I but I bought it for a hundred thousand dollars, and I I really couldn't afford it. Um, uh, I mean, I, I I could afford it, but I I like I didn't want to afford it because I had allocated less money to housing. What I'm getting at is is that uh, it wasn't my dream home. Could have afforded more, but I wanted to buy more real estate. In fact, I did. After I bought that, I bought a condo down the street. I bought a 1,700 square foot condo. I bought that, and, and uh, I actually I actually did what I said I shouldn't do, which is flip it. Someone came along and offered me. I bought it for 170,000, and I had a six month closing. And I was two weeks away from closing, and a real estate agent brought me an offer for 256,000. I said, well, it's more money than I've seen in one check. So I took it. And I didn't, actually, I didn't actually close it. It closed on the same day I closed. But that's not what I, we, I'm not advocating that. You, you know, if that happens to you and it's an instant kind of big paycheck, it's okay. I didn't seek that. But getting back to your question, you absolutely want to live below your means so you can get into a home. That is the key. Live below your means, get into a home, make the payments. And if you should get your head above water, and the weight of the race is now you're a homeowner. And being a homeowner, in my mind, is the absolute secret to financial success in North America. What about pre-construction projects? Would you recommend people look into that and start to sort of think where they're going to be in four to five years and have some money maybe being work, it, it being put away, stored safely, knowing there's an investment down the road? Yeah, I would only ever buy a condominium. Even if I was going to live in it, I'd buy it from floor plans. I'd want to be able to pick where it was in the building. I'd want to be able to decorate it from this, you know, the, the myriad number of choices typically you get from a developer. I'd want to have time to grow into it. You know, when I was younger, I moved from building to building, and each time it was, you know, 700 square feet, you know, then it was 1,000 square feet, then it was uh, 1,700 square feet, then 2,200 square feet, and then, you know, 3,000 square feet. That kind of growth and each time I made money and it was tax-free but but I always bought less than I could and I always bought from floor plans because it gave me time to save and this is really smart you're in a place you can afford it it's great you buy a place coming four years down the line you only have to put 15% down so you put 15% down you can board against your old property now you have two properties and for the next four years you benefit from the rise in price of two properties. So by the time you close on property number two, it might have gone up three or four hundred thousand dollars, but your place did too. So you might have a net gain of five hundred thousand rather than selling and then buying right away. You're financially better off. And I've always, always done that and I highly recommend it. Buying from floor plans, whether you're an investor or a homeowner, is the way to go. How do you factor in student debt into all this and those going for post-secondary schools or to colleges and universities. And, and that's tough on, that's tough on the, uh, on, on the younger generation to do both. Is there a way? Well, that's a whole separate conversation. It's not really related to my expertise. The issue of student death and, or death. <laughs> death. <laughs> that's what it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't have student debt. I, uh, I, I paid for half my university. My dad paid for the other half, which was, and it was, of course, when university was, very, very inexpensive compared to today. But the, the thing is, um, I worry about people that come out of school with fifty or sixty thousand dollars in student debt, and I question their choices uh, of what they're going uh, to take in school. I, I think that uh, you know, this is my opinion, and it's off off topic. But I think people really need to think twice about spending uh, a lot of money on an education that's not going to get them a job. 
Yeah, I often think that too. You got to be careful in the courses that you're selecting and not just doing it to tell someone you have a degree. Make sure yeah. you're, it, it, there's a benefit to it as opposed to just a reputation of it that you did it. Yeah, I, I'm, I come from the school where universities should be hard. Very yeah. hard. Um, so investment advice, could you sum that up, Brad, in, in maybe four or five just quick tips so people can protect for their futures? All right, let's see. So the first thing I would say is live less than your means. Right? That would be number one. By uh, the way, sorry to interrupt. I think that's an absolute vital one. And people get so caught up. You mentioned it last episode. They get so caught up in needing to keep up with the Joneses and the Joneses being on Instagram and seeing this glamorous lifestyle and wasting time also on the social media apps, trying to not only just live that, spend the money, but then present it to everyone. That's time they could just be saving and working. So I think it's a really important thing you continue to say. I really do. And, and uh, you can never drive that point home hard enough for people. Yeah, no, it's, it's very important. Um, I would all, I, <laughs> no, I'm being sarcastic. Let's drive it home one more time. Live below your means. The other thing I would say is, you know, the RRSP is an absolute gift from the, the government of Canada. For those who don't know what that is, it's a registered retirement savings plan. You can put a certain percentage, I think it's 18% of your income. And if you don't put it in one year, you can put it in the next year. And the beautiful thing about this is it's an immediate tax write-off. So if you put $5,000 in a year and your tax rate's 30%, then you're going to get a check from the government for $1,500 sometime in May. And that's, that's $1,500 that goes towards your next year's RSP contribution, right? The government's giving you money back, tax money back. And if you put it in something that has some risk attached to it, I'm not, it's not, I'm not saying real estate right now. I'm saying it could be something like a managed fund which gets, that gets you 5 or 6% a year. If you do that for 10 years, okay, you're probably going to have a down payment for a house. Or if you've saved money in other areas, you've got a nice retirement fund kind of building for you. Also possibly you know, an education fund for your kid. Anyway, uh, number three, if you're going to buy a piece of real estate, and we're talking really about real estate advice here, I'd say that uh, if you're going to buy something, buy from floor plans, because floor plans give you the time to save. Developers will often give you two years to put 15% down, and you don't have to worry about a mortgage right then. So for five years, you can control a piece of real estate because it takes five years from the time you buy it to the time the builder finishes it. And in those five years, more than likely... The model that you, you made for that property, it's an investment property, uh, the rents are probably higher than you modeled, and the prices are higher too. Generally, in five years, prices rise. The other thing I would say is it's very important, number four, is to buy forever. So the guys I know that uh, bought real estate for me that become were 10, 10 20, $30 million, it's just a regular job. And they bought a property, and then two, years, four days, two to four years later, they refinanced it, took the money out tax-free, bought another property, rented that property, now they have two. And they did that every two or three years for 30 years. And after that period of time, they have 10 or 20 properties, and they're worth 5 to 10 to $15 million. And they're also, they also have a property, a group of properties, are paying positive cash flow. They don't have to work anymore. 10 or $20,000 a month in income, they can work if they want, but they can also just be a professional landlord, right? And the last piece of advice is not really, it's more of an attitudinal thing. It's easy to see the glass half empty. It's easy to listen to people, naysayers, friends who say you're crazy. When I bought my first property, everyone said I was nuts. I just said, you're wrong. I've done my analysis, you're wrong. I'm right, I know I'm right. 
you have to stick to your guns, believe your work, believe the, the, the job you've done is correct. Not everyone's trying to take money from you and earn something as a result of selling you property. Sometimes people are just giving you advice. You'll never make any decisions if you're a negative person. You need to see the world in a positive light. You need to see the world as a glass is half full always. Even when you're mad or sad or upset or hurt or fired or even if you've lost money. The glass is always half full. And if you live life that way and you make investment decisions with that attitude, it's going to work out for you. Not to digress, uh, but is there also an opportunity for people to maybe look outside of the city that they live in where there might be more affordable rates to buy something to then rent? Is, is that an option for, those, for some? It is. I started uh, investing in London. It was a nightmare because of the distance. It's only two hours, but it was a pain for me. However... Um, it's, it's also why I'm here today. I learned so much in the five years I was in London. I bought and sold dozens of properties. I did end up getting to the point of being worth about a million dollars when I was 30. And it was through that endeavor. Plus, you know, being a real estate agent afterwards, this is what, this is why I wouldn't recommend that's the first place you buy. I was very, very intrepid and aggressive, and I knew exactly what I wanted. No one was going to derail me. My dad couldn't do it. No one could. So if you're like me and you really believe it, then I would say you could, you could be intrepid and invest in other, other places. But here's what happens to most people. They buy a property, and it goes bad. Maybe the first tenant they get a shithead, and they don't pay the rent. And you got to go to the landlord, tenant board, and kick them out. And then you've lost like three or four months' rent, and you're like... Yeah, I'm going to sell this property. It's a pain in the neck. And then you get out of it because your one experience was terrible. What you want to do in your first property is have a good experience. That's why I suggest you buy a new property from floor plans. You're going to buy it probably at lower price than it's worth because that's how new properties often sell with the five-year horizon. Um, and, and it's brand new, so you're not going to have problems with it where you have to get calls in the middle of the night that the furnace isn't working or the roof is leaking or there's mice in the apartment. All that stuff doesn't happen. So it sets you up for success so that you see the world in your first property purchase, a half, the glass is half full, and then you want to do another one. Is there anything unique to purchasing that might make someone more money? A large terrace, a uh, you know, large one-bedroom, is there, or is it just sort of what fits someone's budget? Well, you know, pretty well real estate sells what it's worth. Developers also price property based on their experience of what it's worth. So I don't think you're often going to find uh, some, some hidden magic value. But here's what I do. I'll, I can just tell you what I do. As a developer, I often buy units in my building. And before being a developer, I always bought units in the buildings I sold for developers as their master broker. And on a 30-story building, I bought suites between three and nine. Really? doesn't have to be too high up. Most people might think that, or at least I will. Well, I'll tell you, the difference between a one-bedroom, if, if a one-bedroom on the, on the third floor is 140, that same one-bedroom on the 30th floor was 160 or 150. And that extra $20,000, I need an extra $200 a month rent to cover it. So no one's going to pay more rent for those extra floors. The rent's about the same. I always looked at it from the standpoint of carrying it, so I have a positive cash flow, because again, I wanted to stay in business with a positive cash flow. I want to own lots of these things, not one or two. I think that's a great piece of advice that I wouldn't think of because sometimes, at least in the investment properties that I've looked at, I've always thought, what would I really love to have in this unit? But it doesn't necessarily apply because I want the best view. I want the sun hitting the windows at a certain time. But typically, the rents are always going to be paid. There's always going to be a renter for that building. And 
or that unit. So get a, get the one that's more cost efficient. Well, think about you know think about like in terms of anything, right? Um, you, you need to uh, to buy property as an as a landlord or investor for the masses, right? If you're running a car rental agency, a car rental agency of Ferraris is not going to make any money. Hmm. Car rental agency of to- Toyota, you know, uh, Yaris's. Those things are going to rent because it's the lowest $29 a day. That's what people rent, right? They need a basic car to get around. <clears throat> Same thing with real estate. Nope. You know, I have guys coming to me. And I only buy the best. I only buy penthouses. And I think, okay, well, I'll sell you a penthouse, but you're an idiot. <laughs> you should not buy the best. For yourself to live in and you think you want the best, fair enough. That's your lifestyle, whatever. But if you're, an, if you're a landlord, you want to buy property that makes a positive cash flow or comes as close as possible because it's harder and harder in big, delightful cities like Toronto, cities where everybody wants to live in. Everyone wants to live here. It's harder and harder to buy a property and make it positive cash flow, but you can get close, and you can get closer if you buy the lower floors. There's a huge difference. I'll t- tell one story. I built a building called King Charlotte. And, and I bought a whole bunch of units in that building. I bought 25 units in that building. And I sold um, 15 of them before, before even uh, the building closed. And I didn't really want to, but the demand was unbelievable. And I had all my suites. I didn't have one on the, higher than the 10th floor. It's a 32-story building. I, have one, I didn't have one single suite higher than the 10th floor. And I sold 15 in you know, two months uh, before the building even registered uh, because it was such demand. And so, you know... Think about this. When you go when you go look at a building that's thirty floors thirty floors tall and you look on MLS and there's maybe three hundred units in the building, how many units do you think are for sale at a time? Maybe five, maybe three? If that, yeah. What's the chance of the unit that you want, just the floor plan available? Pretty unlikely to have the exact height and you know, floor that you want. You might wait four or five years, right? So that's why it doesn't matter as an investor if you buy in the low I don't I wouldn't buy over the, the loading dock you know, or, or over a restaurant or something like that. But, you know, be smart and buy third floor, fourth floor, fifth floor, sixth floor, seventh floor. Those are the floors to buy in the high rises as an investor. And last question, Brad, because everyone listening wants to invest in real estate right now for sure. But some might say, uh-oh, I got to take out some debt to do so, should they? That's not a dirty word. There's this uh, number floating around Canada, 160%, 160%, which is the amount of debt people have over their income, right? So, so if you had made $100,000 a year, is it okay to have a $160,000 mortgage? Yeah. That'd be crazy low, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. The number's dumb. We shouldn't even look at that number. It's a throwaway number. <laughs> Whoever's putting it out there is just falsely trying to scare consumers. If you have $160,000 of car debt and credit card debt, and you make 100,000 a year, you have a problem. But if you have a $160,000 mortgage and $100,000 income, you're doing great. Don't listen to anybody who tells you different. That's a really great thing. And even having more debt than that's okay. So debt's okay. If you buy property and you can afford, so we talked about the DDS ratio, the GDS ratio, you're borrowing money. If the mortgage broker and the bank say you can afford it, trust me, they don't like lending money and not getting paid back. You can afford it, so be okay with that. If you wanna refinance a property, let's say you bought a property, and it's gone up from $150,000 to $250,000, and the rent now greatly exceeds your costs. Borrow $50,000 and buy a second property. That's okay. But just make sure that you've done your numbers right, that the first property will still make a positive cash flow. And then now the second property, the model for that too, is when you buy that second property, it's going to come close or make a positive cash flow as well. And that's when refinancing is okay. Now, I say all that. 
you know, don't go crazy. I've had some consumers that have borrowed money and gone off and bought. I had one guy took a line of credit out for $100,000 and he bought six condos and he couldn't close on any of them. And he was lucky. He, he sold them all, he flipped them all and he made a lot of money. He actually made about a million bucks. But he was lucky because he could have got caught. So you just have to be careful. Debt's not a dirty word. Debt's fine. Debt is what makes anybody rich. But it's the proper use of debt that's important. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode of real estate investing. And hopefully we've calmed some of your fears if you've had any and inspired you to take a look at the market. Thanks, Brad. You're welcome, Todd. If you have any questions for us, please hit us up at info at lamdevcorp.com. That's info at lamdevcorp.com. If you enjoy listening to Live Talk with Lamb, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Thanks.